Welcome to Level Up with Sherelle and Danny. We're here to help you take your health, fitness, and mindset to the next level. It's time to level up. Hello and welcome to today's episode of Level Up with Sherelle and Danny. We are here with the amazing Luke Tulloch. He is an expert in intelligent programming and science-backed nutrition. He has a neuroscience degree. He has presented at a number of seminars, has his own podcast and online course. And he's all about 0% bro science and 100% hard facts. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks very much. Uh, <laughs> the amazing Luke Tulloch, huh? Absolutely, the amazing Luke Tulloch. You um, are amazing. <laughs> So yeah, thank you for coming on. Um, we were just chatting off the off air before about um, Luke has incredible content that he posts on Instagram. Um, he really has a great way of just simplifying stuff. And I think the fitness industry, it's such a noisy space. You know, there's a lot of information out there and a lot of things are just made so complex and so complicated for no good reason. And there's something that you always say, Luke, about, you know, attacking the low hanging fruit. And that always resonates with me because it's what 95% of people out there really need to do. Yeah. I think I learned that lesson the hard way because earlier on in my career, I was always, I was always pretty academic and I liked, I liked the, the mechanisms and like, how does this all work from a scientific perspective? But I kind of just realized that everyone kind of smiled and nodded and went, oh yeah, it sounds like he really knows what he's talking about, but they didn't really get it, right? So yeah. if we really want to get people better or, or improve their knowledge, like you got to come in at a level that it just has to make sense. And, and the problem is, of course, the human body and nutrition and training, it can get as complicated as you want to make it because it's, it's the human body. But at the same time, there, there's a way of presenting it that makes it a little bit more digestible and actually usable in, mm. in the end. So, yeah, that's kind of my goal, I guess. Yeah, fantastic. And it seems like over the last 13 years, lots has happened. I mean, neuroscience degree. And do you mind telling us a little bit about sort of how you started out and then got so passionate about what you're doing currently? Yeah, for sure. Um, Look, I played a lot of sport at school and I think that's probably where I got the sort of love of fitness and training and I wasn't amazingly talented or anything. And so I sort of thought, well, maybe I can get an edge by training a bit smarter or training a bit harder or something like that with, with rugby or whatever it was. So that's kind of where I got into it, I think. And then, you know, after school, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I thought, well, I'll do a business degree. It's probably going to be helpful. So I started doing that. Didn't love it. <laughs> so I thought, well, look, I like training. I'll go, I'll do personal training while I figure out what I want to do with my life. And that sort of stuck. So uh, while I was a trainer, I went back to uni and, and did that whole thing. And uh, yeah, I guess that's, that's kind of just the path I took because I just found it fascinating. Um, you know, and I think the, the most interesting part about it is that, yes, you can learn all the science and, you know, that stuff is extremely useful in my opinion and it's, it's a must, but there's also that element of trying to bring that into people's lives. And so I suppose that's like the art of coaching, right? You have the science, but you also have the art of coaching and it's such an interesting mix of things in my opinion. So that's kind of what, what's kept me going throughout this whole time. Didn't really have any goals of, of doing anything with a neuroscience degree. I just did it because I thought, well, I'll learn a lot about the human body and that's something that's helpful for me. So that, that was it. 
Yeah, I really like what you said there. I think it's really important because people can only understand up to their current level of knowledge. And the, just because you've got the knowledge, or I guess everyone thinks it's a knowledge gap, but it's not a knowledge gap because there is so much information out there. And if it was lack of knowledge, we wouldn't have, you know, the epidemic or the obesity or anything like that that we do have today. So it's clearly not a knowledge gap. It's an application gap. You know, it's making not just optimal circumstances but practical and that's what really needs to be drilled into people like what you say the low-hanging fruit that's what people need to focus on like just focus on calories at the start or food sources or whatever it might be rather than trying to find you know the perfect macro split and I guess Danny like in our circle you know like the competing realm it's it's very much you know everyone's focusing on those one percenters and then general population think that it's those one percenters that really make the big difference and that's when just it just snowballs into this like lack of communication sort of misinterpretation yeah i mean i would agree with that i think you know like fundamentally everybody kind of knows you know that it's 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 eat less and move more right but that's not very helpful Mm -hmm. information because everybody understands that being able to do it and to deal with all the little bits and pieces that make up that is a completely different story but i mean everyone understands like if you're overweight, like you you understand like, Hey, I'm probably just eating too much here or something like that. Right. Uh, so you're totally right. It's, it's not a knowledge gap. It's definitely some kind of implementation kind of lifestyle practicality gap that's there. Mm, For sure. And I love how you called it the art of coaching because it very much is an art. It's not just sort of spitting information at someone. It's about, all right, who is this person and what do they need to fit into their current lifestyle as well? Um, So it very much is an art. So over the 13 years of you being a coach, how have your philosophies changed from when you started to right now? Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's been an evolution for sure. Like sometimes people say, oh, you know, what do you do differently that, you know, something that you've changed your mind on. And usually there's a lot of stuff that I've changed my mind on, but there, there's not often that like overnight, just like, oh, I, I've been thinking completely wrong about this. Uh, it's usually a slow evolution of ideas. Uh, but certainly I think early on, like I mentioned, I was a little bit more academic uh maybe didn't have as much sort of emotional intelligence side of things so my real thing with clients was like let's give them the information and and let's wow Mm -hmm. them with my knowledge right and so a lot of it was just overcomplicated stuff it was stuff that was very much one percent you know a bit too much of a focus on stuff like supplements and things like that uh and so over time i just realized that you know exactly as you've mentioned a couple of times i really like that low-hanging fruit approach like for this individual, what is something that we can do that has the most return on their effort or their investment of money, time, effort, that kind of thing. So that's how my general philosophy has changed. And that, that means that sometimes, you know, as a coach, you're trying to almost justify your existence to your client by doing something that is like they wouldn't have known about, if that makes sense. So, you know, when clients were coming to me, I'm thinking, well, if they're paying me, all of this money and going to the effort and stuff, I need to bring to the table something that they would have never thought about. It's something like, holy shit, this guy knows so much and all this sort of stuff. And you kind of feel like telling them, hey, you need to get to bed on time is, you know, 
you sh- they're paying you for more than that. But the reality is, is that if that's going to get them the result, if that's the easy to implement thing that's going to get them a return on their investment, then that's what your responsibility yeah. is as a coach to, to give them, right? So I think yeah. that's how my philosophy has shifted and just making it a bit more about, uh, that, you know, looking after that psychology and, and getting the basics right. Yeah. Because fundamentally... Everybody, like I mentioned, everybody knows, hey, I should be getting to bed on time. I shouldn't be spending all the time on my phone. I should be doing something to manage my stress. I should be uh, eating enough protein, all that sort of stuff or enough vegetables. But, you know, knowing that and then doing it and finding a way to do it is is a completely different beast. And so that's where I really see my role as a coach now versus being just a, a Wikipedia. You know what I mean? Mm, fantastic. And I'm sure that that would carry over into your seminars and presentations as well i'd imagine like i've been told many times that we need to be able to explain it depending on our audience but for the general population we need to be able to explain it like we're talking to a five-year-old really Mm. just yeah yeah. it's super simple yeah no i agree and i think like um you know depending on my my audience you know if i'm if i've got a a client in front of me versus I've done a lot of seminars for, for coaches and some coaches that I would consider very high level as well. And, you know, the language changes quite a lot. You definitely are going to throw out some, some more complex things for, for the coaches and stuff like that. But even then I I do think it's sometimes some of the, some of the things that you take for granted uh, as knowing your, your client or whatever doesn't necessarily know that. Like, they don't know what they don't know. Right. And just assuming that everybody understands exactly what you're talking about is not necessarily the best approach. So uh, finding some common ground, even if they do already have knowledge on something and then building from there is a better way to go than starting too high and having everything just be meaningless to them. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah. Really well said. I think it's easy to be like, um, well, I know for me being like, Oh, I don't know that much or whatever. But then when you get on your story and you're talking about something, I, I got a question, I was talking about my fitness power and someone said, what's a calorie. And I was like, "Shit!" Oh. like it really humbles you. And you're like, okay, like, mm. you know, they have no idea what I've just spent the last two minutes talking about if people don't know what a calorie mm. is. And, you know, it sounds very blase, but, you know, there's still women that think weights are going to make them bulky and there's still people that, you know, think they need to do keto to lose fat. And all this stuff still absolutely exists. It's very prevalent. It's just that we surround ourselves with certain types of people so we don't see this much. Um, mm. But, yeah, it's really good to be able to, you know, pull away some of the bullshit and attack some of the low-hanging fruit so people don't think that they have to suffer. Yeah. I mean, look, I totally agree. I think one of the big issues is that, especially with coaches, if you follow other coaches or if you're in their quote unquote evidence-based community and you, you know, (laughs) you, you follow all the evidence-based people and everybody's talking about this stuff. uh, But the reality is that doesn't represent 99% of people. And so you do definitely get into an echo chamber with stuff. And there's a lot of things that you just take for granted that most people actually have very little understanding of. So it's very important to make sure that you pull yourself out of that, whatever bubble you're in, you could be in a, in a keto bubble or a physique training bubble or an evidence-based training bubble, whatever it is. Um, Mm. So that's a great point. Yeah, for sure. So which principles and methods do you currently use for training and nutrition? Then obviously you've had 13 years of, of fine tuning. What do you use now? Yeah, I think that's a really key word, principles. So um, definitely I, I draw heavily on the evidence base. And, and for me, evidence means scientific research, but it also means expert opinion, experience in the field, you know, 
personal uh, opinions and responses to things. Those, those are all constitute pieces of evidence. They just have a different sort of weight to them. Uh, but it definitely a principle based approach means that there are a lot of the details that can be tweaked and individualized. Uh, so to give an example, if we're talking about diet, we know that fundamentally energy balance has to be in the right place for us to lose weight, gain weight, maintain weight. Um, so you have to be in a deficit to lose weight over time. Right. Uh, but the way that we achieve that deficit can happen any myriad number of ways. It, you could be doing something that looks like paleo, that looks like low fat, high fat, low carb, high carb, fasting, not fasting, anything in between. And so being able to have a principles based approach to things means that when you get someone who comes along and has a certain lifestyle or a certain belief system or anything, you're able to adapt to that fairly easily and make it something that they're willing to invest their, their time and effort into. So that's really my, yeah. my whole approach is sort of, okay, yes, I do have the sort of evidence base in mind, but I'm trying to meet the client halfway, you know, what's their personal beliefs? What do they think has worked well for them in the past before? Uh, and then being able to, to be flexible with that. So, you know, the, the principles really are fairly basic. It's like for body composition staff, yeah. it's, it's those simple things like your energy balance has to be in place. You have to be getting enough protein, uh, we're looking for a, a variety of micronutrients from the diet, which just means a, a reasonable variety of foods, uh, you know, and that's really pretty basic stuff. But when we're dealing then with someone's individual situation, it can start to become a little bit more nuanced and a bit more complex from there. So it's always a principles-based approach uh, moving forward. And the same thing applies to training, right? Like fundamentally, we're looking for uh, those, those sort of training principles that you always get thrown around in the strength and conditioning world. Specificity, you know, if I want to grow my glutes I, I have to train my glutes i can't uh mm. you know be doing maybe tons of endurance running or something like that um mm. and then the the principles of getting enough training volume um all of those sort of things come into play too but it, it just gets really variable after that i suppose mm. brilliant yeah yeah it's definitely about meeting them halfway for sure mm. A question I wanted to pick your brains on was about, you know, something that's really, you know, a hot topic at the moment, which is refeeds and diet breaks. Um, do you use them and when are they most appropriate for clients? Yeah, uh, something that I use a fair bit, I guess. So first, I guess, a delineation between a refeed and a diet break, because I think this confuses people quite a lot. Um, mm -hmm. Basically, what we're trying to do is if someone's in a calorie deficit, you're going to start getting some adaptations that happen. So the brain will recognize that you're not getting in as much energy as you were before, or your energy stores are going down, you're losing weight. And it doesn't like that because that's a threat to survival, right? So it starts to make some changes to your hormones, your behaviors, that kind of thing. So of course, the classic one is you're going to feel more hungry. You're going to have more cravings. Um, but you also might find that you start moving less. Uh, you feel a little bit more fatigued. Um, and a lot of this stuff's going to be like less subconscious movement. So you might sit down a bit more. You might lean on things a bit more. Uh, you'll probably take fewer steps per day. You can actually become more efficient with your muscular contractions too. So uh, there's a molecule in your muscle fibers that actually causes them to contract or it's, it's part of the contraction process and you can get a more efficient form of that being expressed. So all of these changes basically go into try and conserve energy. And the idea is if we can supply more energy for a brief period of time, 
then the brain might recognize that we're not actually in a survival situation. We're not actually starving right now. And it might sort of release the brakes on some of those adaptations and allow us to, you know, not feel so hungry, not have so much cravings, all that sort of stuff. Mm. So then the idea is, okay, well, we want to have a period of increasing our calories. Maybe we're going to take it up to maintenance. So in the middle of our diet, we might decide that we're going to go up to maintenance. The goal is not to gain weight in this, in this phase. It's, it's just to maintain your weight, but to have a, a short period of increased energy intake. And the refeed and the diet break then come into that. The refeed is typically uh, described as something that's like maybe a day of eating at maintenance. So it's a short period of time. Uh, sometimes it might be like a weekend or something like that. Whereas a diet break is a longer period. A diet break is typically about a week, maybe two weeks. It can be longer. Of course, there's no real hard rules around it, but that's just how we define things. But they're basically the same thing. It's just an extended period or a period at maintenance. So, you know, the idea is that we get this diet fatigue and some of it is, physiological we're going to get changes to hormones like leptin and thyroid hormone and stress hormones and all this sort of stuff some of it's just psychological like if you're dieting it can be psychologically difficult because you're having to restrict yourself you're having to exert willpower uh, you're obviously training and all that sort of stuff so what we're trying to do with both of these techniques whether it's a diet break or whether it's a sort of refeed thing is that we are trying to mitigate psychological stress, but we're also trying to mitigate the physiological changes to some extent. Now, I think a shorter period of time is not going to necessarily convince the brain that you're out of the woods with starvation, right? If you think about it, like if I've been dieting for eight weeks and I've lost a ton of body fat, and then I have one meal or one day of eating a, uh, a bit more, your brain's not suddenly going like, oh, cool. Well, we're sweet now. Like we were starving for the last two months, but now we're okay because we stumbled mm. upon, uh, I don't know, like an apple tree or something. Um, <laughs> so that's, that's not probably going to create much of a hormonal change, but it might provide some kind of stress relief, some kind of psychological relief. And, and for many people that can keep them engaged with the dieting process it gives them a shorter goal to look forward to so let's say you've got like 16 weeks of dieting ahead of you if you're able to get this sort of refeed day whether it's once a week or every now and then that kind of thing it gives you these smaller goals to look forward to that you can enjoy you can blow off a bit of steam from your diet and it gets you to to work hard for the next week it can also provide a little bit of extra fuel for training if you want that yeah. So that's where I see the main advantage of like a refeed day is it's mostly psychological. Whereas a diet break, now we're providing increased energy to the body for a longer period of time. And now we're starting to see like if the brain's getting like a week or two weeks of increased energy, now it's going like, oh, okay, now we've got more energy availability. We're probably okay now. We're not starving to death. Um, mm. And then we can get some hormonal changes. So that's where I see the utility of a diet break being a little bit more useful. Now, the issue is, of course, if you're in a diet break or if you're having a refeed, you're increasing calories, which does mean that for that period of time, you're not going to be losing weight. So if you have a target weight or a target body fat percentage you need to get to, uh, yes, a diet break or refeeds might help you get there because it makes the dieting process easier. But at the same time, it might also extend the dieting process because you're spending less time at a deficit now. So it, yep. it's really, it depends where you're going to use it. You know, sometimes it's just easier to get the diet over and done with. And sometimes it's like, okay, I've got an extended dieting period or I have, 
you know, my birthday or my anniversary or something in the middle of this, it would be nice to have some more calories around. So yeah, I think it has to kind of be again, tailored to the individual and the circumstances, but that's kind of the gist of it. Mm, Yeah. Brilliant. So basically, you know, your diet break is when you are literally having a break from your diet for like a longer period of time. Yeah. The refeed is more like the psychological benefits of just having a bit of a break. And I guess you see that, I guess like, you know, when people talk about having high days and low days, they're really just petitioning their calories and their carbohydrates to make the deficit more sustainable in the long term. And I think, you know, that's really undervalued is that psychological component. It's so important for dieting. Like, you know, those licks, Mm. sucks and bites, they, add up at the end of the week if you are getting fatigued from dieting so it can be a good way to make it more sustainable in the long term yeah and it's something i use a lot with my clients because at the end of the day we want a lot of this weight loss to be sustainable for like 5 10 15 20 years plus it's mm, not just a yeah. case of like for the next two months um mm. and so a real classic way of doing it is just to have lower calories during the week and then have one or two days at the weekend where you've got more calories available to you now if the overall weekly deficit is the same um then you're going to sort of maintain or lose weight at the same rate uh but it does mean that maybe you're a little bit busier during the weekday and you can kind of stay on track a bit and then on the weekend okay cool this gives me a bit more space to socialize or to have a nice dinner with my partner or something like that so it's definitely a a tactic that I think is really, really useful for most people. Mm, yeah, hundred percent. For sure. Something yeah. you just said there about sustaining the fat loss for you know five, ten, fifteen years. Something I've been reading a little bit about is um, you know your body fat set point and about how you can't really change it. And when I was reading that, I was like, oh, so you mean that all these people are dieting? If you can't change your body fat set point, you know how how does that go with the longevity of sustaining that fat loss or is that just something that hasn't really been proven yet yeah um so i actually had a question about this recently and i think the the wording is important because if we say body fat set point what we're talking about is how many fat cells do i have and there is some evidence that we can increase the number of fat cells that we have Uh, Now, mostly this comes from research in rats and there's a limited amount of evidence in humans. So just bear that in mind. We don't really know for sure right now, but there is a little bit of evidence that let's say if you go on a really hard diet and you lose a ton of fat, then you go back to eating whatever you want and you just like kind of overfeed a little bit in that initial period following sustained fat loss. There's a bit of evidence and this happened again, this is particularly in rodents that you can multiply the number of fat cells you get. And so what that is effectively doing is increasing your body fat set point because we're increasing the amount of fat cells you have, uh, which would then hypothetically make it easier to regain body fat Mm. because you're getting more fat cells that can fill up, right? Mm. Now, that's a little bit different to your body weight set point. And I think body weight set point is a concept that is it has again some hormonal influences to it but it also has behavioral and psychological influences to it so many people will find that they tend to hover around the same weight like fairly fairly comfortably uh and maybe that maybe it accrues very slowly over time that's what tends to happen to most people as they get a little bit less active and you know some bad holiday eating habits and stuff they start to accrue a little bit of body weight over time but most people will probably find like for, for myself for example for a really really long time i was about you know, between sort of 89 and 91 kilos. 
And I would kind of fluctuate between that. And that's just because, you know, I had a lot of habits in how I was eating. My sort of hunger was tuned to that. Uh, I'd been that weight a long time. And for me to, to put on a significant amount of muscle and to push past that and, and have a higher body weight range, you know, I had to kind of break through that barrier and, and get into new eating habits and sort of reset my appetite and all that sort of stuff to a different level. So I think that's a slightly different concept where uh, you're including some of these um, psychological factors and, and habitual behaviors and that sort of thing. Mm. And so then once I'd gone up from that, I found that, okay, now I was hovering between sort of 95, 96, 97 most of the time because I was used to eating that amount of food and, and all of my behaviors yeah. and habits sort of built into that. So, yeah, I think, I think there is a sort of set point in the sense that, um, your body tries its best to maintain homeostasis. You know, it doesn't like things getting sort of too high above a certain range or too low below a certain range. Mm. And so certainly there is some kind of body weight uh, set point unless you can kind of break out of that and change some of your behaviors and, and eating habits and things like that. Um, from a body fat point of view, uh, yeah, look, a little bit of evidence that, you know, especially with people, if they're going through yo-yo dieting and, and people find it harder and harder to lose body weight, there is some evidence that perhaps every time we, we sort of do that hard diet, we overfeed a little bit too much and get a bit too excited after the diet without, you know, we don't have a plan on, on, on maintaining that, that mm -hmm. fat loss. Um, you can sort of grow more fat cells and then that might make it a bit harder to lose fat in the future. But I also think there's a strong sort of behavioral component to that. Mm. Uh, so yeah, it's, you know, we'll look forward to more research coming out there, but it's a really interesting topic. And it, it does, you know, to your point, it does mean that, once we've done that dieting period, we need some way of transitioning into a longer term maintenance phase. Um, you know, so that, that doesn't mean that we need to be on really low calories for the rest of our lives, but it does mean that we have to have some kind of plan for like, Hey, what am I going to do after this yeah. eight, 12, 20 weeks of dieting, whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. Um, I didn't know the difference between, I guess, the body weight set point and the body fat set point, because we see it all the time, right? People exiting comp preps and, you know, putting on significant amount of weight or body fat in a short period of time. And that really does highlight potentially why that happens or why it's so easy. And obviously there's a huge behavioral component in that in being mm. deprived for so long. Um, but then that, that body weight set point's interesting as well, because, you know, for example, I'm 20 kilos heavier than what I was at one stage. And, you know, that obviously, you know, muscle mass has to be taken into account as that as well. It's not just fat that we look at. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, totally. And I mean, I have the same experience. When I first started training, I was under 80 kilos. And, you know, just over the years, I've sort of had these it's almost like you kind of go up to a new plateau in a way yeah. and then yeah, you climb absolutely. to the next level and then you I'm climb like, to the oh, next level. Yeah. You're leveling yeah. up to this next new maintenance weight. Like I remember when I cracked yeah. the 60 kilos, I was like, holy shit, that's a new, that's a new yeah. number there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. So it, it definitely gets a bit like that. And so I just had a few of those leading up to, you know, then at one point I was maintaining around a hundred kilos with very little effort, but it took a lot of effort to get there in the first place. Right. Yeah. Mm. But it must all be monitored and tracked. I mean, back when we were talking about um, the refeeds and things, having your refeed day or, or time or diet break, it still must be tracked because what people do, they sort of go crazy and say, oh, I can eat whatever I want now and, and all of that. So they actually can work if you adhere to your calories, um, your calorie goals. So mm. Yeah, if you're the kind of person who will just take that and use that as an excuse to overeat, 
probably not ideal to have yeah. that. Yeah. I am so guilty for that. Refeeds uh. make me so hungry. <laughs> I don't know what it is. Like I almost hate it when I have to have a refeed or a diet break because I'm like, it's like as soon as the carbs start coming in, my appetite increases. And, and I don't know, like, is that something with carbohydrates that make us do that? Yeah, I mean... Some really great points. Firstly, just being able to, to actually track it. It's, it's not a free-for-all because that's a really good way yeah. to sort of ruin your progress. But uh, certainly, I think one of the main things that we do on a diet break or a refeed that you often see recommended is that when you're going back up to maintenance, a lot of those calories are usually recommended to come from carbohydrate. And that's because we have some research showing that leptin, this hormone in our brain, is most responsive to carbohydrate as a macronutrient as opposed to fat or protein. So leptin's kind of like the fuel gauge in your brain. It lets your brain know how much energy you've got left. So it's mostly related to how much body fat you've got. Um, and so the idea is that if we have a lot of leptin, then the brain's going, ah, fuel gauge is full. Sweet. No worries. We're not going to make you hungry. We're not going to reduce your movement, all of that sort of stuff. So the idea then is, okay, yeah, let's have some more carbohydrate coming in. And uh, the thing is, is, this metabolic adaptation I've been speaking about where your brain sort of slows you down and tries to, to delay your fat loss or your weight loss, that can also happen when you overfeed, uh, but in the opposite direction. So when you overfeed uh, or you go into a calorie surplus, your brain also recognizes that and it can ramp up your metabolism. It can make you move more. It can make you feel full. Uh, it can make you less efficient so that you burn more energy for the same amount of movement. Um, now that's the thing is with that is that it's very, very individual. So some people you will overfeed, you'll give them more calories and their weight will barely budge. They'll feel more hungry, like, and they're just moving a ton more and dissipating that energy and other people won't. So really interesting study where they took a bunch of people and they stuck them in a metabolic ward. So a metabolic ward is basically like a really controlled research setting where we can measure exactly how many calories people are burning, exactly how much calories they're eating, all that sort of stuff. So it's very accurate. And what they did is they gave all of these people a thousand calorie surplus. So a huge surplus, you'd expect them all to gain tons of weight. And what the researchers found was that it was really varied how much weight people gained. Some people gained quite a lot of weight because they're in this huge surplus. And some people didn't gain that much weight at all. And what they measured was how much extra subconscious movement they did and therefore how much extra energy they burned as a result of getting more calories. And some people actually moved slightly less. So the, 1000 calorie surplus was now a relative surplus of 1100 calories because they actually moved a bit less. And the, on the other extreme, there was one person who burned nearly 700 calories more. So the 1000 calorie surplus ended up only being about a 300 calorie surplus because they were moving so much more. And then there was a distribution all the way between those two points. Um, so it's really variable on an individual basis. And so for some people, if you give them more food, they subconsciously move a ton more. Their brains just react really well to that. And this is where you see people who do something like a reverse diet or a diet break or whatever, and they end up eating like so many more calories and not really putting on much weight. Whereas other people might find that if they did the same thing, they would actually gain a lot of body fat as a result. Uh, so I would hypothesize that what's happening in your case, Cheryl, is that when you're eating that extra carbs, basically you're ramping up your, your neat and, and things like that. And you're, you're just burning some of that excess energy and then you're feeling a bit more hungry as a result of it. 
Um, so that would be my hypothesis. Whether or not that's actually occurring, I don't know, yeah. but that would be the hypothesis. I can test it. Like I have a very adaptive metabolism, so I generally have to diet on really low calories because I just slow down mm -hmm. so much subconsciously, despite step count. Um, but then again, like you know, I'm very hyperactive. I'm always like this when I'm yeah. you know eating more, so I can increase calories. But it makes so much sense when you say it like that, and it really just you know genetics matter. And I think it's mm -hmm. just important for people to know that. You know, this is just the way it is. We don't get to pick the calories, unfortunately, that we diet on. Um, it just is what it is. Yeah, totally. It's one of those things where everybody's a little bit different. And so it is important that you kind of keep track of what's happening and understand that, okay. you know, yes, it's calories in and calories out, of course. But, you know, it's not as simple as that in a lot of ways, too. It's yeah. got to be a little bit more individual than yeah. that, for sure. Yeah, and the calories out component is just really hard to measure and so different for everyone. Yeah. And, um, so that's the most important thing as well. It's like you can track what you're putting in, but, you know, what's coming out is completely different and variable. Yeah, and a lot of people try and track that with steps and stuff, which is fine. But, mm. you know, as I mentioned, a lot of subconscious movement is where that energy is actually dissipated. It's fidgeting, mm. it's your posture, mm. it's how often you stand up, it's gesturing during yeah. conversation, everything. So yeah. yeah, I'm not a big fan of using steps as a tool for fat loss. Like, I think it could be really good for general population that struggle, like, say, they get 2,000 steps, right? Like, getting someone to, like, a reasonable, um, you know, exercise or, or movement habit is obviously a good thing and, you know, under valued for health purposes but for me like I, I just don't see the benefit in jacking up my steps and like when I was like nursing on a ward I could do 20,000 steps in a shift yeah. and it would make absolutely no difference to body composition my legs would just be tired and probably impact my training yeah. um so you know I think it's I think it's um like you know Fitbits and step trackers they're all really good but only to a certain degree and I think it's more of like a health tool rather than like you know let's let's get on and burn 200 calories by doing an extra 2000 steps mm. yeah yeah i mean I, I would i would agree with that like it's it's one of those things where you're going to start getting diminishing returns and in, in your example if you're someone who sits at a desk all day and you're doing like three or four thousand steps a day you know bumping that up to eight or ten thousand is going to have a really big impact on your health but you know i do have some clients where because they're used to doing 12 or 14,000 steps a day or whatever. Like I, I actually train uh, a lot of nurses and stuff as well. And they do ridiculous step counts. And like, they get, they like panic if they have a, you know, a holiday and they're like, Oh, I only did 16,000 steps every day. And it's like, dude, <laughs> seriously. It's so true. Yeah. yeah you know, my record's so, 40,000 on one day. 40,000. Yeah, 40, yeah. my, my feet were so swollen. That's why we wear God. ugly shoes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. But um, as you sort of said, it's good for health. It's good to get someone away from the desk. I like walking outside, just getting some fresh air, a bit of sunshine. Um, but as a tool for fat loss, you know, we've been talking about sort of that survival mechanism and the body's very good at um, regulating everything through homeostasis. So yes. it's going to get used to whatever amount of steps that you do. So there are other tools definitely to use for sure. Mm. Mm. Yep. In regards to what we were just talking about, Luke, something I wanted to touch on was um, starvation mode. So I think, I guess it really has just been relabeled as metabolic damage, like from what I sort of think it has. And 
is it true that you could ever do damage to your metabolism or what this starvation mode sort of has outlined is something to be fearful of? If, if you do crash diet, you know, how does that correlate between going into starvation mode and it's, you know, negatively impacting you? Yeah. I mean, I think everybody's sort of definition and concept of what starvation mode is, is, is a bit of a different thing. And likewise, I think you're right in that, sort of metabolic adaptation or metabolic damage has just kind of come in and, and supplanted that as a term that we use. Fundamentally, these changes that occur when we lose weight, this metabolic adaptation is not something to fear. It's a normal response and it's not something that we can get around. So I think a lot of people are trying to just like, oh no, I experienced metabolic adaptation and you know what can I do to stop that? Well, it's going to happen. If you lose weight, it's going to happen. And it's not always a bad thing, right? Because like, frankly, the amount of food and, and everything that you have to eat, if you're going from 70 kilos to 60 kilos is fundamentally going to be different. You know, that's just how it is. Uh, so it's one of those things where I think people panic a little bit and think, am I going to be hungry forever? I'm going to be on really low calories forever, that kind of thing. And, and that's not the case. You can sort of quote unquote recover from it. As far as we know, there's there's no such thing as permanent damage to your metabolism. I think where it comes in is probably where behaviors and habits change. And those are really the things that people struggle with the most. Um, you know, so is it the fact that your metabolism is slower now? No, probably not. It's probably a case of like, you're not moving around as much and your behaviors are a bit different. Uh, and that's really the main issue as far as I'm concerned. So we need to find ways of, altering our environment to give us success in the long term. Um, maybe you're feeling hungry because you always have chips in the house and you know that they are just behind that cupboard or they're right in front of you. You know, maybe you're hungry because your partner is constantly ordering takeout and you can smell it or something like that. You know, there's, there's more to it than just like, Oh no, my metabolism got damaged and now I'm always going to be hungry and I'm always going to have to diet on really low calories. Uh, there is an explanation for it and it comes down to mostly movement related stuff and behavior related stuff. So, you know, once we get through the dieting phase, the goal is to get to a sustainable level of food intake, a sustainable level of uh, physical activity for sure. Uh, but that doesn't have to be anything extreme. And it doesn't mean that you're going to continually be hungry or on low calories or anything like that. So the whole starvation thing, metabolic damage, um, sometimes when people say starvation mode, what they mean is metabolic adaptation. And they mean when you lose weight, you start to feel a bit hungrier because your brain's defending your body fat loss. Mm -hmm. Some people mean uh, you're going to get fat even on really, really low calories uh, yeah. just because now your metabolism is so slow, it's damaged. And that's not the case. That, that latter is definitely not the case. Mm. Yeah, I remember reading somewhere, I don't know where it was about, um, they had like subjects from like that had um, experienced bulimia or anorexia or whatever, and they, you know, reverse dyed them and their metabolisms were fine. And they proved that, you know, if this population can restore, um, you know, and be eating an optimal calorie amount, then of course, everyone else can. But it's definitely something that's like thrown around is this starvation mode. And a lot of people become very fearful of it. And almost, you know, yeah. I know when I diet, like I have to get quite low on calories and you almost feel bad for putting that out because you don't want mm. people to be like oh shit Sherelle's on like that low calories and you're like sometimes you just got to do that when you're trying to get really low body fat percentage yeah yeah I mean that's that's certainly the case and like as you you mentioned it before 
you know, there's a really big genetic component to this. And, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, the people who, you know, 20,000 years ago would have survived the famine today are at a real disadvantage because, <laughs> you know, they can survive quite well on low calories and maintain like a reasonable amount of body fat and that kind of thing, because they adapt pretty hard to it. Mm. The people who can diet on really high calories and stay really lean quite easily, unfortunately would have probably died 20,000 years ago in the modern world where we have a lot of food availability and food security and that kind of thing. Uh, and we value people tend to value a leaner physique. Well, they're having their time in the, in the spotlight, I suppose. Um, <clears throat> so certainly, you know, some people are going to be able to be super lean. Like I have a guy at the moment who's, who's dieting and he's, he's dieting on 2,600 calories and he's getting like really lean on it. And that's quite a lot of food, you know? Mm, yeah. He still feels really? a bit hungry on that amount of food because it's not a lot to him, but for most people they're going, Fuck, I'm dreaming of dieting on that amount of calories. I have to eat 1500 or something like that. Mm. Um, and so the reality is, is that not all of us are going to be able to get sort of stage lean vein on abs kind of lean without some really extreme dieting. That's just the case of it. Some people are going to be able to do that and they might be the freaks that you often see on Instagram. Yeah. But the reality is, is that we are not, supposed to be that lean from an evolutionary perspective and it's often not healthy to be that lean for many people um so i think it's just yeah you know realigning your expectations and understanding that uh we we all have a uh a hand that we're dealt we all have you know the cards that we can play in front of us and we need to to deal with that what whatever is within our control in a healthy way um, so sometimes that does mean realigning your expectations of what a healthy physique for you looks like and feels like, um, you know, not all of us are going to be stage lean, uh, and, and also be able to maintain that in a longer term, but some, some of us are for sure, but those are going to be the outliers. A hundred percent. Very we, well said. Yeah. We definitely preach that, you know, it's, it's not sustainable to stay at that low body fat percentage or eating that low calories as well. And, you know, like what you said, calories are very relative. So for some, you know, 1500 calories, they might be starving on it and for others, they're not. So mm-hmm. this is why, you know, I'm a bit funny about putting numbers out there because it's just different for everyone. You know, someone else's maintenance, that'd be hungry on. It actually doesn't matter. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I absolutely. think it's also important, as you mentioned, just to look around your environment before we sort of hear something and hold on to it out of fear, such as the label of my metabolism is damaged. Well, try and have a look at your life as a whole and work out what can I change? Mm-hmm. As you mentioned, is my partner ordering takeaway or, or do I always have chips in the house? Things like that. So really give it a good go first and always aim for something that is sustainable. I love that you keep bringing up that word because that's what we're all about. Uh, we are very much trying to spread the message that an eight week crash diet is not going to make you happy. It's not going to like serve you at all. Uh, so we're very much about the sustainability, which is cool. So thank you for answering some of these questions that we still get a lot. Um, and on to yeah. the next one that we still get a lot of questions about is bloating. So what are some of the key contributing factors to bloating and GI distress? Yeah, uh, big one. So this comes down to some individual factors as well. Uh, The biggest thing that I think of when I think of bloating, GI distress, like getting that sort of really big belly after a meal or something like that, where it's uncomfortable is Mm. FODMAPs. Now FODMAPs, 
stands for fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols. And all that means is that these are little sort of carbohydrate molecules that can be fermented by our gut bacteria. And when they're fermented by our gut bacteria, they produce gas. So everyone's gut bacteria makeup is a bit different. They're kind of like a fingerprint. So you could actually identify individuals based on the ratios and amounts of gut bacteria that they have in their, in their guts. And so everybody kind of responds a little bit differently. So some people might have some garlic or onion, for example, and that completely makes their gut blow up. They get really bloated, lots of gas, very uncomfortable. Other people might be able to eat it by the boatload and be completely fine. Um, and so there's a bunch of these different things. So some of the more common ones are the carbohydrate chains that are found in things like apples or onions or garlic. It might be things like lactose from milk. Some of them involve uh, artificial sweeteners like sucralose and things like that. Um, there's a whole bunch of, of things you can look up that the research was originally done by Monash University. So you can actually just Google mm. Monash FODMAP and they have an app and everything mm. like that. But that's usually the first place that I go when people are having issues with bloating, because sometimes it's just one of those things. Sometimes it's a combination, you know? So for example, I tend to handle most things pretty well, but there's definitely a threshold where if I go across that threshold, I do notice a bit more gas and bloating, Um, you know? And so I know like, okay, if I'm going to have like a protein shake, that's got some artificial sweeteners in it and I'm going to have like a protein bar and then I'm going to have a ton of dairy. Okay. All of that together is maybe a bit too much. It's not necessarily one of those things that's causing me the issue. It's like all of that stuff together. Um, So you kind of have to just do a bit of experimentation, but you know, the funny thing is, is that a lot of people might feel that they have something like a gluten intolerance or something like that. But uh, some of these FODMAPs actually come from wheat as well. And it's not gluten related. It's, it's the carbohydrates inside there. So, uh, if you think about some cuisines in particular, you know, let's say someone eats a lot of like pasta, for example, and they think, oh, every time I eat this pasta, I get a bloated belly. I feel really uncomfortable. It must be the gluten in the pasta. Well, what are the FODMAPs involved in your pasta sauce? You probably have some uh, garlic, you have some uh, onion, then you've got the wheat and the pasta, then maybe you're throwing some cheese in there as well. So you're getting a little bit of lactose, you know, so there's all these things combining in that one meal. Mm. So it could be something completely unrelated, Mm. but that's definitely the first place I would look. Um, And and I suppose that's what most people think about when they think about bloating. But I mean, there's other stuff as well that some people describe as bloating, which is more related to like their water weight and how sort of watery they feel under the skin or how soft Mm -hmm. they kind of look, I suppose. Um, And there's different ways that we might, sort of retain water after a meal. A lot of it has to do with how much sodium you had, um, things like the menstrual cycle as we, as we lead up to bleeding, people tend to hold on to a little bit more water. Um, if you have a really high level of stress, sometimes we can see that people hold on to water underneath the skin. If you're training really hard and you generate some inflammation, let's say you did a really hard leg day and there's a bit of muscle damage there. Part of the natural repair process is inflammatory signaling, and that will attract a bit of water to the area. So it's important to realize that there's a bunch of different transient events that can occur that can increase your body weight and, uh, change how you look a little bit maybe make you feel a bit softer or or, or quote unquote bloated, Mm. but these are sort of temporary events. And if we're, if we're looking at things in a trend over time, you tend to find that those, those sort of disappear in the trend line. So that's also an important thing to think about, I think. 
Mm. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. I think the um, I've used the Monash, the app for the um, the FODMAPs. It's really good. Like I used to have a lot of digestive issues and I think I target it down just to, to a few different foods like broccoli, artificial sweeteners and um, peanuts. It was just like mm-hmm. those things because it's so restrictive when you do, if you do want to go down that FODMAP path, like you realise that onion powder is like in everything delicious and you have to yeah. really start cutting out everything. So it is really extreme, but you know, one by one, you can sort of wean them out and sort of slowly figure out. And like what you said, quantity really matters. I can have a little bit of broccoli, but you know, I used to eat like the whole thing. So it's no wonder that you'd get distressed, especially when you're dieting, you know, you're just like, okay, I'll just eat like five broccolis today. It's going to be fine. No, that's not, that's not. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Awesome. So for everyone who hasn't checked out that app, Monash university FODMAPs, get on Google and, uh, Look that one up. All right. Should we move on to training? How about that? Let's talk about a bit of Let's training. This is great. We could have you all night, but we won't keep you all. <laughs> we better move on. This is the best. All right. Sherelle, hit us with the next question, please. So training program non-negotiables. Are there any that you really like um, are just key fundamentals for having in? Okay. So the thing is with training is that we have to think about ultimately what the, what the goal is with the training. So the training is a stimulus that is moving us towards some kind of result. Right. Uh, so I think for some people it almost becomes like training is the goal. Like I, I, you know, I have to train a certain amount or I have to do, um, certain movements or something like that. But if we, if we look beyond that and go, well, what's really my goal with this training, what am I trying to achieve with it? Then it makes it much clearer as to how we should, provide that stimulus um now for some people literally the the training is just there to you know maybe burn some calories or just to get them active and and like kind of have some of those health benefits for other people it's something where um you know i'm going to compete and i need to grow my muscle like that's a really big thing or i'm a power lifter and i need to get strong in these three lifts uh, but sometimes people go, oh, strength training. Uh, okay, so I have to squat, bench, and deadlift. Well, no, hang on. The non-negotiable here is only what you make it. It's like, well, I want to get stronger chin-ups. Okay, well, then all of your training should be geared towards that. Why you, you shouldn't be doing anything superfluous in your training that doesn't contribute to the outcome that you're looking for. So that's really the, the main thing. Now, if we're looking to, generally speaking now, you know, we're going back to our principles thinking, um, what are the things we need to do to progress with strength and maybe growing some muscle? Well, we think mainly about training volume and we think about building in some form of progression. And those are kind of like the, the non-negotiables in my mm. mind. Mm. Now, training volume is a really interesting one. And what I mean by training volume is basically just how much work do you do? And there's a bunch of different ways of defining it. Um, so sometimes people in the past have defined it as, okay, well, let's, let's look at the total tonnage that we lifted during a, a session or a week. And that's a very like strength and conditioning based way of doing things, but you'd then basically just multiply your sets times reps times weight lifted. And you might get, you know, I lifted 2000 kilos in this lift or this session or whatever. And the problem with that is that, uh, there's a lot of different ways that you can get 2000 kilos of volume. Um, not that I'm going to do the maths in my head live because <laughs> I'll make myself look like Go on. <laughs> but <laughs> let's say you did some really low rep sets. So they're really challenging. Uh, you'd have to do a lot of sets of low reps to accumulate a lot of training load. 
mm. over time, mm. right? Whereas if you did really light sets, uh, and but you did a lot of reps, you could accumulate a lot of training load very, very quickly. And it's very difficult to sort of equate those. Those are very different looking sessions, but you might still be doing 2000 kilos of training volume. So people went, okay, well, maybe that's not the best way of trying to track things. Um, what we ended up realizing was that the main thing that matters is effort on a set. And what I mean by effort is how close to failure are we getting? Because there was some research that came out that showed that provided we go to failure or very close to failure, we could use 85% of our max or we could use 30% of our max. And provided both of those, we did enough reps that we were close to failure, we actually see pretty similar muscle growth outcomes. So now we have this model where people talk about um, working sets and a working set is just like, am I getting within a few reps of failure? Basically the, the criteria is you should be lifting the weight and it should start to slow down significantly because that means that our brain has essentially recruited as many muscle fibers as possible throughout the set to help us lift that weight. And that means that they're going to get a stimulus and that means that they're going to potentially grow, Right. So this comes in now to one of our primary things that we need to think about is how much training volume am I, am I doing? And there've been numbers that have been thrown out, like, oh, you should be doing this amount of working sets per body part. I don't know if I really buy that. I don't know if we have so much data to really say what you should be doing as an individual. I think it is really individual. And I think it's relative. If you're someone who, uh, let's say, does 10 sets on your biceps, every week, uh, 10 hard working sets, no matter what that rep range is, um, you know, going to 12 sets is going to be a relative increase of a certain amount. But if you're someone who is doing eight sets a week on your, on your biceps, going to 12 sets is a significantly higher proportional increase. Yeah. And so it's difficult to kind of say, well, this is the perfect amount of volume you should be doing. And it's always going to change. Basically yeah. what we're trying to do is to provide this stimulus. We're then trying to, uh, recover from that to make sure that we can come in and, and do it all over again. So that's kind of like fundamentally what we're trying to do with training. Um, and, and you can see that the way you could set up a training session, then it, there's a lot of different ways you can do it. And, and this is part of the problem. It's like, I think with nutrition, there's obviously a lot of different ways of doing things, but we still have these kind of numbers of like, okay, you need to eat at least this much protein and you need to be having about this many calories. Whereas with training, it's like for me to get a, a stimulative amount of training volume every week, there's 3 million ways I could implement that in terms of what exercises do I use? What rest periods, what rep ranges, uh, exactly how much volume am I doing? All those sort of stuff. So yeah, can get a little bit hairy yeah. when we get into that sort of stuff. Um, so yeah, I think that that's kind of like one of the key things. And then the other thing is building in progression. And, and this is important. And, and it's a bit of a misunderstood thing because uh, progression shows us that we have gained strength or that we have gained muscle. Um, some people think that it is the progression itself that's causing the muscle growth or the strength gain. And therefore they try and build that into their program by saying, well, every week I'm going to increase the amount of weight I do for the same number of reps by 2.5 kilos or something. And that just means that at the start of the training program, you probably weren't training hard enough, right? So we want one of two things to happen over time. And when I train my clients, what I look for is from week one of a program to maybe week four, maybe week six, I want one of two things to have happened. I want either them to be lifting the same weight 
but doing more reps at that weight, or I want them to be doing the same number of reps, but with more weight. And again, that doesn't have to happen every week. It's just like, if I compare week one to week four, have we seen an upward trend in either of those measurements? Cool. Then we know based on that, that we're going to be getting stronger and we're probably going to be gaining muscle. So that's kind of what I mainly look at, but within that there's, you know, tons of different, different directions you can go. Yeah. Lots of really good points in there, Luke. Um, and you know, that progression one's really interesting as well. Cause like when I first started training, I was like, okay, every week I've got to add weight to the bar. And then it's like, okay, well, if I try to add a kilo to the bar every week, like, you know, by the end of the year, I'm not going to be squatting 200 kilos, am I? So, yeah. you know, it's really important to be able to justify and individualize it for yourself and also realize that, you know, um, put, perfecting your technique that's progression as well like there's so many other ways that you can measure progress yeah and and really what we're trying to do is we always need to remember that we're just trying to put tension across muscle fibers right um and that doesn't necessarily mean that uh we have to do a specific exercise necessarily it doesn't mean that we have to like increase the weight all the time um it's something where we could use other methods of progression. We could use a, a slower tempo, uh, a better technique or something like that as well. Mm. Now those are obviously more difficult to track over time. So that's kind of the big downside of it. But, you know, again, it, I think sometimes people get a little bit too caught up on these objective measurements of improvement, which is great. I think you should have some objective measurement, but you should also combine it with some subjective measurement. How easy does the training feel? Like how good does the movement feel? Uh, how confident are you in the gym? Uh, can you visually see changes happening? Things like that as well are, are important to combine. Um, because again, the human body is this like big mess of variables and it's not like you're going to have the exact same state of consciousness every time you go into the gym, right? Like some days yeah, you might've slept right. a little bit better or a bit worse. You might be a little bit more or less stressed. You might've had a little bit better or worse day of eating. All of this stuff can affect your performance in the gym. So if all we did was say, well, the only thing that matters is that this number goes up. Well, we're not taking into account all of the different factors that are going to affect your recovery and your trainability that day. So you have to kind of work that in a little bit. Yeah. yeah, and I like how you sort of mentioned that you, you look from rather than week to week to week, week one to week four, what have the changes been? Um, but it's also important. And what I notice with people a lot, they don't perform the same movements enough. They sort of one day they'll do this, then the next week they change exercises and all of that. And because there are so many variables, I think people do get a little too caught up in that still. Uh, but it's important to, to limit the variables as much as you can and really just stick with the same training program, give it a go for at least, you know, three to four, even to six weeks and just focus on changing, increasing reps or weight, as you mentioned, and not get caught yeah. up in shiny things on Instagram that we see and, and yeah, yeah. changing. Yeah, that's fundamental. Like that you can't measure improvement if you're changing stuff all the time, right? It has to be yeah. as consistent as we can get it, knowing that there's going to be some variation there. And to your point, like, you know, oftentimes the main reason I'm changing my client's program is to keep them interested. Because yeah. frankly, if something's still working, if they're still getting stronger and growing muscle, but they've been doing the same training program for like 20 weeks straight, as an extreme okay. example, is there any reason for me to change it? Like no, if the only goal is to grow muscle, get stronger, why would I change it? Because it's still doing the job. 
the reason we're changing the program is to give us some variation to keep us motivated. Um, of course, we are going to change the program if we're no longer making progress and we need a bit of a different stimulus, of course. But often I think people will just be like, okay, it's been four weeks, dust my hands, I've got to yeah. move on to the next thing and I've got to change everything completely. Mm. And that's not necessarily the case. Yeah, a little bit of what they want with a little bit of what they need is what I yeah, say. Exactly, like, exactly, sometimes yeah. you might make sure. the smallest changes just to, you know, keep that variety because we all feel it. Like you go into the gym, you're like, oh, God, you know, the same hack squat, the same split squat, the same whatever. You need that variety. Um, you know, really mm. diving into training. Um, you did a fantastic post recently um, on, you know, the menstrual cycle and around training and hormones. So I think it's, um, you know, it's a very hot topic as well. And there's actually not a lot of um, males out there that are really openly talking about it so thank you for doing that i know a lot of um male pts are really curious but they perhaps don't quite understand so would you mind shedding some light on perhaps you know what you've dug up in the research for how to train optimally as a female around your menstrual cycle yeah this one can be a bit complex because again everybody's an individual and because there are so many changes happening throughout the cycle it can be a little bit tough sometimes to um, understand what's going on from a research perspective. Uh, because like, let's say you're, you're a scientist and you're trying to measure the effects of the menstrual cycle on training or food or whatever, and you get a bunch of women in. Okay. So none of their cycles are synchronous, right? They're not, they haven't all just yeah. like set the clock on their cycle and everybody's <laughs> going to go through that a bit differently. So the scientists might go, well, we consider a normal menstrual cycle to be 28 days, but your body doesn't know that your mm. body might mm. do it on a 26, 27, 30 day, whatever sort of cycle. So there is a little bit of problem with it, but the general way it looks is that prior to bleeding, we have an increase in the hormone progesterone and relatively speaking, estrogen's a little bit lower. And then after bleeding, it's kind of the opposite. Um, and, and, you know, things change day by day and that's really simplifying it, but that's kind of how the picture looks now. Generally speaking, we associate estrogen with slightly better outcomes in terms of uh, trainability and mood and um, like diet related stuff. So you tend to see like less cravings and things like that. Whereas progesterone is roughly the opposite, like a little bit harder to recover from training, maybe a little bit more cravings, maybe feeling a little bit more bloated. So like a little bit harder to do some movements, you know, if you're going to be doing heavy squats or something and and you're feeling a bit bloated and a bit watery, it's not that nice. So all of those sort of things can factor in, but each individual is affected a bit differently. And so some women might find that their trainability is completely unaffected by the cycle and some women can barely get out of bed at, at a certain time of the month, right? Uh, so I think it's really important that as a female or if you're coaching uh, a woman to acknowledge the fact that the cycle is going to be an inevitability for, for many women. And because, you know, I trained some women that have uh, gone into menopause, but mm -hmm. it's one of those things where tracking it yourself and understanding what happens on average for you is an important part of, you know, working around it. Now there's a couple of different schools of thought. One school of thought is like, okay, well in those periods just before bleeding occurs, uh, if we're going to have, you know, worse carbohydrate usage because we're less insulin sensitive. If we're going to not recover as well from training, maybe we should be changing the training and the diet around that. Maybe we should be reducing training volume, making the sessions a bit easier, uh, maybe playing around with like calories, maybe going a bit lower carb, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And then there's another school of thought that goes, well, because we're having 
hormonal changes happening on a, on a daily or semi-daily basis. And because it's very difficult for us to, to predict exactly what's going on, maybe the best approach is actually to just try and keep things consistent so that we're not constantly trying to change things all the time and make predictions that are going to end up being inaccurate anyway. Um, yep. I tend to fall a little bit more on the latter. So I tend to go look for a lot of the people I coach, the value of having some consistency there is, is higher than trying to change things constantly. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are definitely people that I coach where they like, they know roughly what's going to happen at roughly this time. And it's like, look, I'm just not going to be able to train as hard that time. So cool. We'll build in some auto regulation. We have some easy sessions there, that kind of thing. Uh, so I do think it comes down to some, some individual responses there. And some women really like to try and take advantage of the way their cycle works. They, the week before bleeding is maybe a bit of an easier week. The week after bleeding, they go, right, I'm feeling fantastic. I can push a lot harder and that's going to be a really hard training week for me. Mm. Um, so yeah, that's kind of like the general gist of it. Now, if you throw in stuff like birth control, like hormonal birth control, that's going to start to change things up a fair bit. And the problem is I I can't tell you exactly how, because birth control is something where there's a lot of different forms that are used. There's, there's four different generations of birth control out there. Most of generation three or four being used today. There's different release schedules. There's different hormonal combinations. It interacts with your own body differently because you know, everybody's got different sort of receptor densities and natural levels of hormones. So it gets a bit tougher to say, Um, and that's why I kind of do like that approach of like, well, let's find something that works pretty well and just try and be consistent with it because otherwise we're just kind of guessing we're we're throwing, you know, at a dartboard that we can't see, unfortunately. So that's kind of my approach, but, um, I don't know if you guys, do you guys do anything differently around your training and stuff with that? I definitely do. Like I definitely notice in the first two weeks I can push harder and then ovulation on rubbish onwards. Um, but it's also, you know, I like what you said, it's not, it's not something where you need to psych yourself out and be like, Oh no, yeah. you know, mm. you, know you, you don't get to pussy out or whatever just for two weeks. Cause that's half the month. That's six months of the year that you're just like, okay, well I'm rubbish. No, you don't yeah. do it like that. Um, so I, I'm just more mindful, especially the week before I generally don't push as hard. Something I've wanted to try and do was like, um, you know, put more volume, like more training sessions in the first two weeks and then sort of have less. So I'm still over the month. Um, but again, like not many people need to worry about this. It's only if you really do notice big fluctuations, but, um, something more so that I've been, you know, seeing people talk about is like manipulate their nutrition and that's something where I'm with you on I'm sort of like well we don't know like just because your temperature goes up and you're going to burn more calories like how do we actually know it's really just a guess so just because you get more cravings it doesn't necessarily mean because that manipulation with energy is being changed so it really does come down to like you know individuals and circumstances and what you said about contraception as well that's just like a whole nother thing that you can't even even dissect or get into so yeah I think it's easier just to stay. um, Thanks. Yeah. I think it's easier just to stay consistent as consistent as you can, because I mean, it can be easy to psych yourself out, as you said. Uh, So I definitely just try and remove all variables. Yes. I increase my, my self-awareness. Okay. Do I actually feel a bit more tired today? How do my uh, joints and ligaments feel? Because I know sometimes depending on where you're at in your cycle, uh, single leg work can sort of feel a little bit more uncomfortable. So you might need a bit more of a stable base. But again, I try not to become too hyper aware on it uh, because then, yeah, you're just sort of um, 
setting yourself up for failure. So mm. I think it is best, as you mentioned, stay as consistent as you can, but pull back if you need to, push harder if you're feeling good. Yeah. yeah. And even that push harder thing, I'm like, oh, I'm about to ovulate. Like, and I'll just push harder. And I'm <laughs> like, it's almost like placebo. You're like, I'm yeah, exactly. For sure. All right. Should we hit one more? One more, Sherelle. One more, Luke. All right. Let's I do have it. to ask this one. What is your opinion on fasted cardio for fat loss? Please give us something to handball everyone to. Yeah. There's a lot. Okay. So the idea with it, right, is that you're going to burn fuel based on what you've eaten and based on the exercise intensity that you're doing. So if you are fasted and you're doing aerobic-based cardio, so like sort of slower intensity stuff, then you are going to burn more fat as a proportion of the fuel that you're burning. Okay. Mm -hmm. But that does not mean that you're going to burn or lose more body weight or more body fat over time. It still comes down to what we're doing on average, because regardless of the source of what you're burning at the time, let's say you decided to not do faster cardio. Let's say you ate a bunch of carbs before you did that cardio and maybe you were doing higher intensity stuff that's a bit more reliant on burning through your your body's stores of carbohydrates so now you're burning more carbs as a fuel source fundamentally that energy has to be replenished from somewhere and so it still comes down to the overall energy balance for the day and they've done plenty of research on this fasted cardio versus fed cardio it really comes down to how many calories are you actually burning during that cardio that's going to affect how much body fat you lose over time. So we're not really that interested in what's the mix of fuel that we're burning for this, this particular workout from a fat loss perspective. We're more interested in how many overall calories are we burning? Uh, what's our energy balance at the end of the day? Um, now, if you were like an endurance athlete, a high level endurance athlete, sometimes they play around with like, okay, we're going to you know, do some low carb sessions so that you're burning more fat as a proportion and this and that, but that's more from a sort of elite endurance training perspective, but from a fat loss perspective, from an average Joe perspective or average Jane, put it that way. <laughs> um, you know, it really just comes down to how many calories you're going to burn. And, and the research is really, really clear on that. So uh, yeah, not, if you want to do faster cardio, by all means go for it. Sometimes it actually feels a bit more comfortable to train that way. I find, uh, yeah. I just find it nice to kind of get up in the morning. You can get that stuff done on an empty stomach and then you can just eat afterwards and that's cool. Yeah. But, uh, you're not going to get any sort of particular advantage by doing that from a fat loss perspective. Yeah. It's definitely something that's still absolutely really believed in the fitness industry, which is crazy mm. because like what you said, it's so evident in the research that it's, you know, the calories over the course of the week or whatever, we don't lose fat in like a single day. It's what we do over a period of time. Um, but again, like what you said, like I personally find cardio in the morning on an empty stomach, more comfortable. I just have a coffee and go and do it. And it's fine. You can save calories. So again, it makes dieting, I guess, more sustainable mm. if you're doing it like that. So it comes down to personal preference but then again knowing that it's you don't have to do fasted cardio like if you have to do cardio at night time it doesn't mean that it's not as um effective as cardio in the morning exactly yeah exactly yeah. right yeah mm -hmm. and you can't really uh get a, so you can get away with sort of having a light walk in the morning great but in terms of a big heavy weight session i definitely would not do that fasted because you need fuel for that session so mm. yeah 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 a lot of people feel a lot better if they eat before that um, you know, I think it also sometimes depends on what you're doing. Like I've trained some powerlifters before where they're, they're using like a belt and, and they're squatting really heavy yeah. and stuff. And so for them to eat a big meal, 
it was not ideal. And so we might use some liquid nutrition before or during that training or something like that, just so they feel a bit more comfortable. So yeah, it kind of depends on how you feel as well, I think. Um, but certainly we're not too concerned about like how much fat are we burning here or anything like that. It's got to come down to the calories. Yeah. hundred percent. Amazing. Thank you so much for coming on and answering some of these, you know, questions that are really just or myths, I guess, that are circulating around in the fitness industry. And, you know, I think it's really good to be able to have a space where you can and, you know, you've got a podcast yourself where you can come on and just like break down some of the bullshit. You hear stories, you see people doing stuff and you're like, oh, God, if people could only learn from our mistakes. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, real pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. Uh, Always nice to chat. Yeah. So tell us where, um, where our, oh, sorry, Danny, <laughs> tell us where our audience can find more about you, where they can listen to your podcast, your fitness fundamentals. Yeah. Uh, everything's on lukeTullock.com, uh, or my Instagram underscore Luke Tullock. Uh, if you're looking for the podcast, just search my name in whatever podcast app you're using and it should pop up. Yeah. Amazing. So um, anyone and everyone who's listening to this, if you did gain something from the episode, please do take a screenshot, tag myself, tag Danielle, tag Luke, and of course the Level Up podcast.